Right, please turn again to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. And let me pray as we begin. My gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that the kingdom of your Son will never stop increasing. His greatness will have no end. And so, Lord, I pray that your kingdom right now would grow, that its greatness would increase in our lives and in um, all our spheres of influence, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Right today uh, we'll take um, we'll just look at chapter nine verses one to five uh, one to seven sorry mainly and we're gonna we'll see that firstly there is light and joy spitlo and joy and then we'll see why right so we'll take it in, in two sections that first section then the light and the joy um, verses one to three so we begin verse. Um, in verse 9, with the word nevertheless, that makes us think, well, what came before? You see, chapter 8 ends with a very dark view. Look at verse 22. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Gloom is another word for darkness. They mean the same thing. Gloom, darkness. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. It ends quite badly. Um, fearful gloom. It is the result of the people's rebellion against God. If you rebel against God, you are in darkness. Um, that's what happens if you look at verse 21. They have cursed their king and their God. And now hold on to that reference to king, because we'll come back to it. But then we come to verse 1 in chapter 9. There will be no gloom. Same words in, in verse uh, 22. No gloom, fearful gloom. So now there is no gloom for those who are in distress. Distress, that same word as fearful in verse 22. So chapter 9 introduces a reversal, fearful gloom, but no, Svitlo, light, no more darkness. And who is this for? It is for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the north. Now, we don't have a map of Israel, but if you picture a map of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali are in the north. So when the Assyrians came, the bad guys. Who did they attack first? Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are the first lands to be uh, pillaged and carried off into exile. And actually those lands, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, became three Assyrian provinces, which roughly correspond to what it says um, at the end of verse 1, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, and Galilee. Those, became, those were the three provinces that Assyria turned Naphtali and Zebulun into. In many ways, perhaps we could think of Naphtali and Zebulun 
and a, a little bit like Crimea. Crime. They used to belong to Ukraine or Israel. And then the evil people have come in and pillaged and taken over. And now, darkness. But into this darkness, the darkness of grief, the darkness of destruction, the darkness of death, shines a light. The light shines. And this is more than just political darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a light. That phrase, you know, to walk in darkness, that's really talking about the way people live their lives. They live their lives in darkness. Their conduct is dark. Their behavior is dark. That's where the end of chapter 8 helps us flesh that out. They are against God, cursing their king and their God. In many ways, we could think a little bit of Scotland. Scotland may not be an invaded country like the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but it is dark. The people are walking in darkness. So first we have the light shining in. Svitlo. And verse 3, we have joy. Joy. Now this joy comes with a surprising thing. Look at verse 3. You have enlarged the nation. There's an odd thing to say of a nation that has gone into exile. Right? If anything, they've been crunched up and re-chopped up into different provinces. This is not a nation that is growing Growing its borders, becoming more great and bigger. It's not a nation that's increasing, but that's what it says. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. And notice that this is all kinds of joy. The joy of harvest and the joy of plunder. You see, they rejoice before you, talking to God, as both people rejoice at harvest. That feasting, lots of food. Right? We're coming into the, the Advent season. Right, Christmas is a time of feasting, time of joy and happiness. Harvest is a time of feasting. We're going to eat lots of food. We're going to be happy. And also, what kind of joy is it? It is a joy as when warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. It's the same kind of joy you get in a liberated city. right? And we th can think of various places in Ukraine where that's the case. Not only is it feasting, now the bad guys have gone. We've beaten them and now we're free again and we're dividing the plunder. They left behind all these goods. Yes, they're now ours. This is a joy. So all kinds of joy, both the joy of harvest and the joy of plunder. It's a really good way of trying to convey to our little minds the richness and the depth and the, the multifacetedness of the joy that Jesus brings. But then we ask the question, why? Why is there light? Why is there joy? Well, it is, if you like, Midian 2.0 or Midian version 2. Look at verse 4. 
For, this is the reason, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Now we said, yes, in the, in the chat with the children, this story is found in Judges 7. Gideon and his 300 men. It's interesting to note there that Gideon was a particular savior for the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. You can see that in Judges 6.35. Gideon is the savior of Galilee and the region around it. And there's that bit that we read out earlier in chapter 7 where God says to Gideon, you have too many men. Too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me, saying, My own strength has saved me. And so the numbers drop from three, so from 30,000 to 300 men, all the way down. And in the end, the Midianites kill one another in their confusion. What's the theme? God did the impossible to save his people. But more, God did the impossible to defeat his enemies. God defeated his enemies. It looked like all was lost. It was dark. There was no hope, but God did the impossible. In fact, more than that, God made it an impossible situation, and then he defeated his enemies. And that is why the glory goes to him. And so Isaiah 9 says that we're going to do Midian's defeat, version 2, Midian 2.0. And what is going to be the result of Midian 2.0, Midian version 2? Verse 5, every, uh, sorry, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood. So these are things used for war, things used for fighting, for battle. What will happen? They will be destined for burning. We'll be fuel for the fire. We won't need them anymore. We won't need them anymore. There will be no more war. There will be world peace. Now, for those of you who grew up with sisters, um, you might have watched Miss Congeniality growing up. Now, in that film, it's quite a fun little film, Sandra Bullock. Um, world peace is a joke. It's a thing that all the models say that they want, and they all know that this means nothing because you're never going to get world peace. But far from being a joke, Jesus will actually bring it. This will be no joke. This will be a reality. World peace won't be a, a kind of a nice wish that nations kind of want but you know won't really achieve no jesus will actually bring world peace there will all the garments that are rolled in blood there will be cast into the fire don't need them anymore earlier on in isaiah it says all the plows will be so all the swords will be turned into plowshares we won't need swords anymore so we'll use them for farming instead world peace that is why jesus is called just later, the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. But then here's the thing. Verse 6, 
if we are doing Midian's defeat version two, well, then we need Gideon version two. If we're doing Midian 2.0, we need Gideon 2.0. And who is Gideon version two? Look at verse six, four. To us, a warrior is born. No, oh, no. For to us, a hero is, oh, no, no. For to us, a child. Huh? A child? A wee little baby? Gideon 2.0 is a baby? World peace is brought by a kid? A child? What is this? One commentator uh, um, has this to say. The emphasis falls not on what the child will do when grown up, but on the main fact of his birth. In his coming, all that results from his coming is at once secured. Yes, we know that we are saved by Jesus' cross. Yes, we know that we are saved by Jesus' resurrection. But let us also just remember that we are saved by the mere fact of his birth. So, if I were to ask you, how did God do the impossible to defeat his enemies? How did God do the impossible to defeat his enemies? The answer I suspect we would normally give is the cross. And actually, later on in Isaiah, that is the answer. But in Isaiah chapter 9, the answer is the birth of Jesus. The answer is not Easter. The answer is Christmas. And so why? Why? Why is there light? Why is there rejoicing? How on earth will Gideon 2.0 do Midian 2.0 if he is just a baby? Well, there are maybe two things to see. The first is that he is an heir. He is an heir. He, he, he is, if you like, the, the son of a king. He will have a kingdom. We see that he is, a child is born and a son. Oh, son. He is a male heir. He will be king one day. Verse 7 says that he will reign on David's throne. David was a king. Throne is what kings sit on. So Jesus will reign on David's throne. He is an heir, a prince. Now, um, Prince Harry is, I think, shortly about to release a biography called Spare. In the monarchy, it's important that when the, the, the king, to keep the line going, they have the heir and they have the spare. If anything, if anything happens to the heir, well, there's a spare. It's okay. Now, it probably is quite a hard life to live as the spare. Harry certainly feels that way. But what does that even notion of air plus spare give to us? It's because there is an anxiety. We want the kingdom to continue. And so when the air is born, oh, he will continue. 
But let's notice that in the context of Israel, it is because we've had so many bad kings. The kings are bad. Just a few pages earlier, we have King Ahaz. King Ahaz is very bad. He doesn't trust in God. He tests God even. And even later, even later on, when we have good kings, like maybe Hezekiah did some good. King Josiah was a good king. Even their obedience couldn't turn the tide of judgment. There was too much sin. And the kings had led the people into too much sin. And so judgment was coming. And so when we have the hope of an heir, the hope of a king who will sit on David's throne, suddenly, suddenly we dare to believe that David's son might just reign as king forever. That's what God promised. God promised that David would have a son, a good king who would reign forever. And all we got was one bad king after another bad king after another bad king. And so now, to us, a child is born, a son is given. <gasps> now, now we have the prince who will reign forever. It is an impossibly dark situation here in the text. The sinful kings dragging the nation into more and more destruction. But now we have an heir who will be king and as an heir who he said will bring world peace by shattering his enemies. Destroying anything that stands itself up against God. He is an heir. That is the first reason why we are, why there is light, why there is rejoicing. The second reason is because he is God and human. You might notice that this, this person is called mighty God. And then it says that this person is born. And so we ask ourselves the question, how can God be born? How can a God who has existed forever be born? It's impossible. So humans are born, but this person who is born is clearly God. He's called Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful meaning, you know, out of the ordinary, a little bit miraculous. Certainly divinity is not excluded from the possibility of what that word means. He's called Mighty God. God you don't really call people God, not in this sense, not especially in the sense of Mighty God. Especially if you just turn the page over to chapter 10 and verse 21. Chapter 10, verse 21, it says, A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Talking about the Lord, talking about Yahweh there. This clearly, mighty God clearly means God. And yet in chapter 9, mighty God is born and humans are born. And then he's called eternal father. And sure, we can be fathers, but we cannot be eternal fathers. That is a quality that only God has. What is the impossibly dark situation here? Mankind. Mankind had sinned against a holy God. 
and could never earn their way back into his favor. Like the good King Josiah, even his obedience could not earn his way back or his land's way back into God's favor. Hey, only a God could do that. Ah. Oh, I see. Mankind had sinned, and mankind cannot earn their way back into God's favor. Only a God could do that. Maybe, just maybe, we need someone who is fully human and fully God to bring light into this impossibly dark situation. On our own, as mankind, we are dark. We have no hope. We need God to become as one of us, fully God, fully man, and to save us. That is the impossibly dark situation. But how do we apply this a bit more to us today? Well, how will Christ shine light onto our impossibly dark situations? Let's think of a few situations, maybe. One would be church. Isaiah 8 charts the course of Israel's rejection of God. In a similar way, many parts of God's church have rejected him. The church's problem is that it thinks that that its existence depends on being like the sinful world we're called to reach. But no, we as the church must wait, wait for Jesus. This is Advent. This is what we do. We wait for Jesus. We hold fast to him. We let Jesus be king. We let Jesus be king. How will Christ shine on our impossibly dark situations? How about another one? Persistent sin. How many of you keep on fighting the same battles over and over again? You cannot kill a certain particular sin. You, who even in this weak walk in darkness, have seen a great light. God did the impossible to defeat his enemies on the day of Midian's defeat. God did the impossible to defeat his enemies in the birth of Jesus. And God can and will one day fully do the impossible to defeat his enemies. In this case, your sin, our sin. And there are those of us today who still walk in the darkness. We are still living in a land of deep darkness. We are still living in a way that rejects God. We curse our King and our God. When there has been a King born for us, King Jesus, and today He shines His light on you. Many, many weeks ago, we said that Jesus is the light of the world. Listen to God's word. That's what Isaiah says in Chapter 8, verse 20, consult God's instruction, the law, consult his testimony. As you listen to God's word, God's light will shine on you. And then you will begin to know some of that joy. That joy in Jesus, that joy of harvest, that joy of plunder. The people walking in darkness in an impossibly dark situation, have seen a great light.
and his name is Jesus. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you are the heir, the king who brings joy and light. Jesus, I thank you that you are full, even now, you are fully God and fully man. And you bring hope for us humans who are completely hopeless without you. I thank you that you are the light of the world and that you shine into our impossibly dark situations. Lord, as we begin this season of Advent, help us again to renew our eager expectation of you. Help us to wait for you. You who are the light. You who are wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We wait for you, O Jesus. Amen.